Welcome to the podcast of the preaching ministry of LifePoint Church, led by Pastor Lane Harrison. We pray this ministry is a blessing for your life. For more information about LifePoint, please visit lifepointozark.com. For more information and resources from Pastor Lane, please visit mlaneharrison.com. A couple of weeks ago, my wife came home and uh, in response to some of the things she had recently encountered on her shopping trip, she said this, the longer I live, the less I find I have in common with this world. I concur with her. If you, if you don't know what we're talking about, if you'll just take a trip to the mall, you'll encounter some of the same things that we have. A lot of y'all don't know me. There's, you're not laughing. Thank you. I'm not even too proud to ask for it. I concur because there are regular moments that I encounter things in this world that make me feel and think the same thing. Now, let me clarify something. I'm not advocating for, nor is it ever right, for a Christian to hold an antagonistic posture towards the world. That's not a biblical posture for us. But the reality is this. That the more you follow Christ and become like him, the more you find yourself increasingly at odds with and often counter to the ways and the patterns, the philosophies and the convictions of the world. Now this does not mean that we love people less. Doesn't mean that at all. It does mean that we must lean into Christ to know how to love them faithfully according to his word. And the reverse of that is true as well, that that the more we indulge in worldliness, the greater our struggle to believe, to trust, and to obey Christ, to obey his commands and his teachings to us. And so as we approach this third sermon in this Reconnect series, I want to take just a moment to identify and point out an essential progression that I have tried to make in the order of these sermons and why that's important for today's message. Each subtitle of the Reconnect series has identified an essential for a Christian to follow in faithfulness in the world. The first sermon was Reconnect to God. Reconnect to God. The second one was Reconnect with the church. And today's message is to reconnect in the world. You see, Jesus says that there will be tension between Christians and the world because he calls people out of the world in salvation. John chapter 15, verse 19 states, If you were of the world, the world would love you as its own. But because you are not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. Now he's not speaking of of the fact that when you become a Christian, everyone's going, every time you see someone who's not a Christian, that they're going to point at you and, and scream hateful things at you or about you or toward you. But he's talking about the fundamental underpinnings of the convictions and philosophies and ideologies of the world. What he means is that Christians do not find our source of life and hope in the world. Our strength, our our patterns of thinking about the world, our philosophies, our virtues, our values, and all of those kinds of things. Beyond our origin in creation as part of creation... Nothing about the Christian life is sourced or sustained from the world. But though we are not of the world, Jesus did leave us in the world. In it for his purpose and his glory. 
That's why two chapters later in the Gospel of John, he prays in chapter 17, verses 15 to 18. I do not ask that you take them out of the world, but that you keep them from the evil one. They are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. Sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. As you sent me into the world, so I have sent them into the world. So even though we are not of the world, we are purposed in the world. And that is the tension of the Christian life that we must continually learn to understand. Christians are not in this world by accident, but by divine commission from our Lord. And the source of the Christian life is the same as the source that Jesus drew from for his life when he, when he was on earth. He says in the Gospel of John, I do not do what I want to do, but only do what I hear my Father tell me to do. And I only say what I hear my Father tell me to say. You see, Jesus in his application is pointing us in our application to the truth of God's word, which works its sanctifying power in us as we believe and obey. You see, a Christian's life should demonstrate that we are in the world as faithful witnesses to Jesus, but distinctively that we are not of the world. And so it is to this faithful witness which we aim today. How is it that Christians live in the world as a faithful witness to the glory of Jesus and his lordship? Well, here's what I want you to walk away with today. God calls Christians to live as a faithful witness in the world, knowing that our reward of glory is worth it. Knowing that our reward of glory is worth it. You know, there's a letter in the New Testament that's written for this exact purpose, and that's the letter of Peter, 1 Peter specifically. And I'm going to look today at the first chapter of 1 Peter to identify three recognitions for the Christian to faithfully engage in the world. I hope and pray that this is a blessing and an encouragement for you. The first recognition is this. Christians must recognize that our identity determines our true home. Our identity determines our true home. Let's go to 1 Peter, and I'm going to begin by reading the first two verses. Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who are elect exiles of the dispersion in Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia, according to the foreknowledge of God the Father in the sanctification of the Spirit for obedience to Jesus Christ and for sprinkling with his blood. May grace and peace be multiplied to you. Here's what we need to recognize from this, that our identity in Christ determines our true home. And that's what Peter begins to say to us when he introduces the letter that he is writing to the Christians in his day and time. In Christian history, this is one of the most intense epochs of history of persecution, of suffering, of incredible violence that we, quite frankly, know very, very little of today. Listen, though, to how different translations have uh, uh, stated the original language here. We just read the English Standard Version. Let me read the New International Version, 1984, for you, where it says, To God's elect, strangers in the world, scattered throughout the American Standard Version of 1901, which is 
clearly known from scholars as the most accurate, literal English interpretation of the original languages, says it this way, to the elect who are sojourners of the dispersion. And then the Living Standard Bible says, to those who reside as exiles, scattered throughout, who are chosen. You see, what, what Peter does in, this, in these opening verses, he identifies three critical aspects of a Christian's new identity in Jesus. And the first one that he identifies is the word elect or chosen. Elect or chosen. He's telling us that our salvation in Jesus Christ rests on God and nothing else. We need not fear what the world can do to us. It cannot snatch us from the hands of the one who has saved us. John MacArthur said one time, if you could gain it or get it, speaking of your salvation, you would surely lose it and probably a lot faster than you would ever imagine. But you can't, so you won't. You see, our salvation is not determined by our relationships. Some of you had a grandmother that prayed for your salvation and because she prayed for you, at some point, you, you came to faith in Christ. Not only because of her prayers, but her prayers were significant. You felt them. Some of you had parents who have raised you as Christ followers. And, and you understand what it means to know him and to follow him because of that. Some of you are, are raising your children in church and you, you attend church with family or you, you have strong friendships and relationships. But listen to me, friends. In the eyes of God, not one of those is the cause of your salvation. Some of them have helped the cause, but they are not the cause. We're not saved because of who we know. We're not saved because of where we live. Sometimes in a culture like ours where church is common and you hear the word Christian a lot, people can just see what you seem to say from their observation about Christianity and go, you know, it's okay for me to be called a Christian because I see some ways that are common in us and so I must be a Christian too. And I, I believe in Jesus to the extent that he was a person or some tenets of what the gospel may speak. And so they go, yeah, sure, I'm a Christian. I don't have a problem with these people or they don't get in my way or I don't not like them or I even attend church. I go sometimes or I go a lot. I'm there all the time. None of that makes you a Christian. You cannot become a Christian because you live close to one, because you identify some of the same things that they believe and so you agree with them on some moral tenets or some kind of spectrum or scale of that, you only become a Christian one way. You believe that Jesus is God's son, that God sent him from heaven to earth. He lived a perfect life and he willingly laid down his life to be raised upon the cross and in his death upon that cross was your death for your sin, not his, for yours. And by faith, you have died in his death on the cross so that... When he was put in the grave three days later afterwards, he was raised and your life is because of his life. That's a Christian, friends. Less of you, not more of you, not a better you. Not even 
a greater manifestation of you. No, less you, more him. All of him, none of you. The only thing that you bring to your salvation is the sin that demands it. And what God has brought is the grace that always exceeds the demand of the sinner's sin. And in the same way we didn't gain it by those measures, we cannot lose it. You know, persecution can't undo your faith. That seems counterintuitive so often when we hear of persecution. But the fact of the matter is, Scripture teaches that persecution can't unsave you. There's nothing in this world that can take away what God has done for you. These are not easy doctrines for us to embrace at times. And surely there's no small amount of argument in Christendom over these things. I'm not arguing when it happened or how it happened, but I'm telling you that Scripture says it is true of you. Peter doesn't offer us as elect exiles as something to consider as an option that maybe we want to tag on to our faith. He says, because of Jesus, that's who you are. That's who you are. So he says, first of all, that we are the elect and chosen of God. A second critical aspect is we are sojourners. We are exiles in this world. You, Christian, are always God's. And Christ, because of that, is your true eternal home, no matter where you are. So wherever you go, and for whatever reason you may go there, in this world you will never feel completely at home. Why? Because you are not. That's why. Christ is your home, and only when you are in eternity in heaven with him will you know, will you feel, will you be completely at home. That's why there is this tension, if you will. Why Jesus said, the world will hate you because it hated me. And thirdly, scattered is this critical aspect of our new identity We are God's chosen and purpose for his glory. Therefore, his glory is always our highest purpose for life. No matter where we go, no matter what we're doing, the glory of God is the Christian's first priority in all things. These are three critical aspects of our new identity. And Peter begins by saying these because this is what determines who we are. This is what determines why and how we live. That's what he's going to introduce to the Christians here. We must remember our place in the world, Christian, because far too frequently we are prone to think that the world is our place. And Peter says it's not. It doesn't mean that Christians can't or shouldn't enjoy the world. As a matter of fact, this is our Father's world. Christians ought to know how to enjoy the aspects of creation more than any other. But the way we enjoy them, the reasons we enjoy them, and the way that we understand our time on earth is always with eternity in view because of Jesus Christ. You see, we always lose hope and joy when we lose sight that this world is not our place, but we remember that it's our place, rather, in the world. Christians have hope that is not of this world. That's where Peter's going to lead us today. And that hope empowers us to have a hope at any time, in any place, and in any 
situation. Now, when we say this world is not our home, we mean the ways of this world that are sin-stained. We have to remember that there is a dual usage of the word world. In the scriptures, there's a number of words that are used in this way. And when Peter is speaking of it, he's talking about the ways of the world that are sin-stained. They're tainted. They're twisted. They're skewed. They're broken by sin in every way, in every manner, and to every extent. And you see, sin always produces one singular wrong, and it's this. It is a false glory that steals worship from God. All sin produces this wrong. And Christians hold our relationship to and our perspective of the world in accordance with this very tension, that we live here to enjoy life and enjoy all of God's creation, but we do so as an act of worship and glory unto him, not in worshiping the creation or using it to worship ourselves. But we are not of this world, and therefore we do not blindly nor ignorantly accept the ways the patterns, the philosophies, the loves, the false gospel, except that we see them through the gospel of Jesus Christ in accordance with the will, with the way, and the word of God as he has revealed himself. Christian, you are called to live fully in the world while remembering that you do not ultimately, your life is not ultimately defined by nor confined within its parameters. We must recognize our true identity in Jesus determines our eternal home. The everlasting God who has always been the dwelling place for all who believe in him is still our dwelling place. And friends, I'll remind you, that's how we started this whole series. Psalm 90, verse 1. God, you have been our dwelling place through all generations. And friends, that's as true today as it has always been. And that's what Peter is appealing to us to remember today. Secondly, Christians must recognize what we have been giving, given, a living hope, a living hope. Go to verse 3 with me. I'm going to read verses 3 through 12. Blessed be the, Father, uh, the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you, who by God's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. In this you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials, so that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold, that perishes though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Though you have not seen him, you love him. Though you do not see him, you believe in him and rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory, obtaining the outcome of your faith, the salvation of your souls. Concerning this salvation, the prophets who prophesied about the grace that was to be yours searched and inquired carefully, inquiring what person or time the Spirit of Christ in them was indicating when he predicted the sufferings of Christ and the subsequent glories. 
it was revealed to them that they were serving not themselves but you in the things that have now been announced to you through those who preach the good news to you by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven, things into which angels long to look. We need to recognize what we've been given, a living Hope, that's what Peter begins. He begins by expressing a blessing to the Lord for his provision and salvation. And he says, why are we blessing the Lord? Because we've been born again to a living hope. In Christ, we are given a life-sourcing power that will never fade nor diminish. And without Jesus, we have to work, we have to strive, we have to strain, we have to squeeze every ounce out of life that we can muster. And some of you get that. Because you give yourself to it every week and every week you feel like you squeeze as hard as you can and when the last drop of hope or of goodness comes out, you are exhausted and spent and you keep wondering why the same old ringing doesn't bring greater lasting satisfaction. Because the world doesn't have it. That's why. You won't find it in your job. You won't find it in your relationships. You won't find it in your recreations. You won't find it in your pleasures. There isn't anything that this world provides that you'll find lasting satisfaction and joy in unless Christ is in view for your glory. When our strength is gone, And the power from whatever we're squeezing life out of is over. We find ourselves back at the same place. But you see, Peter contrasts our life in Christ with that. And he says that when we are in Christ, our source is without end. All of his power produces life that overcomes death, that overcomes hell, that that brings resurrection power in us. There, There is no power of sin, nor is the grave any longer a threat to us. Listen, friends, the biggest unknowns and the biggest uncontrollables of all of life are answered by the overcoming, resurrecting power of Jesus Christ. There is no other power that brings what his provides And it is the one who brought this that is guarding us in it for eternity. That's what Peter says. He explains that eternal life in Jesus is the source from which we draw for our daily life. You need to hear what I'm about to say. Because it's one of the most glorious truths of all the Christian life that holds you. In the midst of any difficulty or trial that you have. Yes, as Christians we experience difficulty and trial in life. It is not a get out of trial test or hardship free card. But all that those things can do is that they can refine our faith by the testing of it. They cannot remove it. They cannot remove it. And our hope is anchored, he says, in our inheritance. Oh, this is the good part. Now, if you're a mathematician or if you're in the financial markets and world, you, you want to listen to this because I, I have the answer for you to make it big in this world. Like, just hold with me for a moment. Our hope as Christians is anchored in our inheritance, not our daily experience. Listen, you know what that means immediately? It means this, when you have a, a bad day, it doesn't mean God's doing a bad job. 
When you have a bad day, it doesn't mean that God is less worthy, he's less sufficient, or in any other way, he's less loving towards you. No, instead, it reminds us to draw not from our daily experience, but from our eternal inheritance. You see, no matter how much you draw and consume from Christ in your daily allowance, not even with the momentary downturn, does it in any way affect your eternal inheritance. You get that? It doesn't matter how many times you come to Christ and you turn to him and you call out to him. It in no way fades nor dismisses your eternal inheritance. That's the living hope we have in Christ He says this, and though we don't see him as we see other things in this world, we love him because every test and every trial, he proves himself more real to us than any reality in this physical world. Why? Because the God who created us and wove us together as the complex beings that we are is the one who speaks to us in the complete and wholeness of the gospel of Jesus Christ to bring life, not just just to our minds so we get smarter and we find the solution or the answer, not just to our heart so we feel comforted and we're okay about it even though the storms continue to crush and destroy us. No, it's the God of our whole being. It's mind, it's heart, it's soul, it's strength. It's the whole of who we are. That's why we love him. And in Christ, here it is, here it is, we are invited, yea, even commanded, to borrow against our eternal inheritance to meet the demand of our daily need. You don't have to live paycheck to paycheck. You can just draw it out of your retirement. And every time you go back, it's gone up, not down. That's what he's telling you here. I've got several friends that are financial advisors and I've seen each of them at some point over the last couple of years as is often the case in uncertain times saying do not touch your retirement. Don't touch it if you can't. I mean if you get away without it, don't touch it. Don't touch it. You're gonna want it there. Jesus is saying have it all and it isn't going anywhere. Dig deep, dig regularly, take as much as you can out. It's just gonna provide room for me to dump more in. You will never find the end of his supply. Your daily demand will not overwhelm his depth. You see that? You don't have to worry about your future. Use it all today. And it won't be one drop less tomorrow. Are you not overwhelmed by this? How great is the hope that we've been given? Our reality in receiving from Jesus' resurrection power. It's not only present now, it was present then. That's what verses 10 through 12 tell us. That the very prophets who wrote what we now consider the Old Testament, man, they were working their fingers to the bone 
on the papyrus and sticking the, 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 the feather in the ink and scribing it down going, who is this? It tells us two things about what they knew by Holy Spirit conviction. There was a man who was coming from eternity and he was going to pierce time and he was going to walk on the face of this earth and they didn't know when it was going to happen but they were convinced that it was going to happen. Those are the same people that wrote the scriptures that we look to today to see the fulfillment of God's promise and the one that we know has come. And what Peter is saying to the New Testament Christians is that the same faith, the same inheritance that they had in Christ that they looked toward, even though they didn't have all the details, is the one that we draw out of. We're all living out of the same retirement plan if you're a Christian. You can draw out and give it to others. It's still not going to be less. This is such a conviction anchoring and a courage building for Christians. For the prophets of old who wrote so that we would know of his coming knew the same power in their anticipation and foretelling that we know in our believing and forthtelling. They're talking about what was to come. This is what you should believe. We're talking about what has come and this is why we can anchor our faith. And what Peter says, it's the same pot. And there's plenty of life for all who will believe. You see, our living hope, Christian, does not have a time stamp on it. There is no best used by date about it. I have to tell a story of my mother since she's here today. She'd be disappointed if I didn't. Years ago, years ago, we were having dinner. And uh, I like pickles. And so we, uh, we pulled the pickle jar out of the cupboards. She knows what I'm telling. I can't look over there. I'll be in trouble. I can feel the gaze right now, though. <laughs> and I took the pickles out, and I, I opened them, and I stuck the fork in and pulled it out and took a bite. And I thought, wait. Or these pickles are olives. Because without looking, and I'm colorblind, they were green. Some floaties. They were out of date. Long out of date. Oh, they were out of date. I hate olives. All of them. They should never exist. But pickles that want to be olives are even worse. There is no date when this goes bad. There isn't anything that's going to take it away from you. There isn't anything that's going to sour it or make it something that it's not today. Christian, you should be drawing regularly, singularly, abundantly, and deeply from Jesus because you will never find any unwillingness of his power, any weariness in his provision, any end of his supply, or insufficiency of his power for your daily life. The way God designed eternal life in Christ and our salvation is to live it now and know it only, get be- it only gets better for all eternity. The living hope we're given from Jesus by our new birth through faith in him is eternal just as he is eternal. The third recognition is this. Christians must recognize our calling to live a holy life by the power of the gospel. Look with me at verse 13. I'm just going to read a few of these verses for the sake of time. Verse 13 says this. Therefore... 
preparing your minds for action and being sober-minded, set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. As obedient children, do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance, but as he who called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct. Since it is written, you shall be holy, for I am holy. And if you call on him as father who judges impartially according to each one's deeds, conduct yourselves with fear throughout the time of your exile, knowing that you were ransomed from the feudal ways inherited from your forefathers, not with perishable things such as silver or gold, but with the precious blood of Christ, like that of a lamb without blemish or spot. He was foreknown before the foundation of the world, but was made manifest in the last times for the sake of you, who through him are believers in God, who raised him from the dead and gave him glory so that your faith and hope are in God. We've got to recognize our calling, Christians. That's why Peter begins verse 13, therefore... Our calling is to live a holy life by the power of the gospel. Christ has not given us his power to live any way we choose. The power of Jesus' resurrection always completes the redemptive purpose of his word. And our new birth makes us like Jesus. That's holy. And even Peter's quoting that from God himself. That's why Peter says, we've got to prepare our minds for action. You see, Jesus' resurrection power working in us is not about accomplishing our goals or just solving our problems, though a lot of that happens along the way, but rather his purpose is to make us perfectly and completely his, holy as he is holy. That's what God is doing in every Christian's life today and begins to do when you repent of your sins and put your faith in him. What actions then are we to prepare for? obedience obedience to every word of God every command of the Lord Jesus Christ to trust and to obey him and listen to me friends this is why it's so important to understand how holistic and complete the gospel is to speak to our lives the whole of our being nothing clouds the mind like the storm that's in the heart Nothing clouds the mind like the storm that invades the heart. When the heart gets heavy, the mind gets dark, and it often gets drunk in its thinking. Now, some of you think drunkenness only comes by the consumption of a liquid, but that's not true. Scripturally, drunkenness is anything that overwhelms you to overtake you and control you. That's drunkenness. And when we get so sorrowful, when we get so even pleasured by the things of this world, anything that is not of Christ, we just get absorbed in it in our heart and it begins to condition, condition our mind and anything that is not in accord with the word, the will, and the way of God is a drunkenness by the world. And what Peter is saying is if our heart's not clean and pure before God, our mind's not gonna be tracking with his word. Therefore, we need the gospel to speak to the issues of our heart so that our mind can be clear with the truth of God's word. You see, in Jesus Christ, the light of the knowledge of the glory of God has shone into our hearts to clear away the heaviness, to take away the loneliness and the grief and the darkness, to remove and identify the false pleasures that the world is selling to us and to tell us there is a better way, there is a more glorious way that will not perish, will not fade, will not spoil. 
until Jesus makes our heart pure so our minds can think clear and sober by his truth about all things for all of life. That's why the therefore is here, preparing our minds for action. And we need help thinking clearly today in order to stay spiritually healthy. I told you a couple of weeks ago, this is the greatest, most worst month of my life. My annual physical happens in the month of August. Man, somebody should have warned me. I know why you don't tell people. They wouldn't go. Now, now it's not, it has nothing to do with the doctors. It's all about me. And it all stems back to the fact that that nurse would take my fourth finger and prick it with that needle pin. And, and that was the scariest moment of going to the doctor for me, still is. Praise be to God, they can just stick something on you now and it just takes all that and you don't have to go through the pricking of the finger. I think the CIA uses that to get people to talk. You know what I'm saying? I mean, it's that bad. But anyway, I digress. Let me continue. My doctor told me, he said, Lane, you you need to be sure you're taking regular vitamin D and he told me how much. He said, you gotta keep your immune system strong in these days. I replied, well, doc, I've been popping pills since all this started. I don't think he took it the way I intended it, but anyway. But it's interesting, when he told me that, I wasn't suspicious of his motives. I didn't go, why are you telling me this? What are you trying to do to me? Are you trying to undermine me? You're trying to make me sick? What are you doing? No, but so often we read God's word, that's exactly what we do. I don't know what you think you're telling me. But you have some conspiracy underneath me that you want me to obey this, but I don't know if I can. That's how we approach God and his word so often. Is it not? You don't have to answer that. But you see, friends, we need to keep our spiritual immune system strong too. And that's discernment. Discernment that comes by the truth of God's word. We've reached a point in our day and time where the daily horoscope is almost as reliable as the daily news. Don't amen that. You don't have to. I'm not asking. I'm telling you. That's my experience anyway. But neither of them should be taken only at face value. Actually, the former should, you just need to stop. That's what happened before people lived in their mother's basement and blogged all the time. They wrote daily horoscopes. They've always been useless. There's plenty to put into your mind daily that darkens and drunks. It litters our news feeds every day, does it not? But let me ask you, what are you putting in your mind every day that can make your heart clean and pure so that you're confident your mind is clear and sharp? There's only one thing that can do that. That's the Word of God. And friends, I assure you, if you're not putting it in there, it's being pressed out by the things of the world. And you might say, but I can quote a verse. The problem is not whether you can quote a verse. That's good and beneficial and you need to keep doing that. The question is whether you're going to turn to that verse when your heart gets overwhelmed in the moment you need it most. And if you've not been trusting it, you're not going to turn to it. You see, Christians live out our call to holiness by no longer being conformed by the passions of nor to the patterns of this world. We immerse our heart in God's love to consume our every adoration and to shape our every affection for Jesus. We hear God's call to live holy life and we don't go, oh, I can do that. No, as a matter of fact, we say quite the opposite, but we say this, Christ, yes, because of I believe that's what you want to do in me. 
And we know that our lives are accountable to the one who will judge the living and the dead. And that knowledge shapes our decisions and our actions when we are confronted by our challenges. And the useless stuff that we used to fill our lives with, both heart and mind, not just from our biological forefathers, but from the forefather, principally Adam himself, sin itself, we recognize they're sin-stained and they're antagonistic towards God. And they no longer satisfy us. You, You get tired of your sin and what it does to you because Christ is working in you. And you begin to realize, I can't keep giving in to this. I've got to put righteousness in me and only the word of God can bring that to you. And when it does, what it puts in you will never spoil, fade, or perish. Not one You see, the reason life collapses and is so often consumed by the heat of tests and trials is because we've built it out of wood, hay, and straw instead of that which is precious and can only be refined by the heat of tests and trials. Christ will never wane one bit in you. And that love for God produces a love for other people. You see, God's word's not going anywhere. When your heart and mind are full of it, your life is anchored on him. God calls Christians to live as a faithful witness in the world, knowing our reward of glory is worth it. Friends, I hope and pray you'll take these three recognitions with you today and remember them because God has you here for his purpose and his glory. And I want to conclude today with a story about the road to glory, a story that reminds us that following Jesus is worth it. This summer, I've shared with some of you, my brother and I fly fished on a high mountain Colorado lakes for several days. And the video that you're seeing is our ride to get to one of those lakes. Uh, I want to point out a couple of things in this short video. It's it's not going to get that phenomenal. It's just shot on my phone from the front seat of a Jeep. Uh, That stretch of road was much rougher than this video conveys. I started video and as soon as we turned on it, not thinking we were going to turn on this road, and yes, that was the road he chose. It took us about 35 or 40 minutes to go three and a half, four miles. And friends, it was uncomfortable the whole way. It wasn't just uncomfortable, it was painful at a few spots to endure. It just felt like the Jeep was gonna fall apart at any moment. And sitting in the front seat, my seat was only attached on the right rear side. So I kept rocking back and forth, having to guard myself from doing a headbutt into the front dashboard. It was horrible. It was uncomfortable the whole way, painful at a few spots. And this is what's most most important, the third thing about the video. If you could hear it, which there's a lot of background noise, so I didn't use the sound. Immediately when we turned on that road, there was a dog in the back seat that begins to pant very loudly. I'm talking the slobbering, throwing it everywhere, this is gross kind of panting. Uh, That dog's name was Trevor. Trevor was an 80-pound black lab He's not a small dog. He's a large presence in the back seat of a Jeep. He was laid out asleep in the back floorboard the first 40 minutes or so of the drive, such as one would wonder if he was even alive. You better check his heart rate. But as soon as we turned left and hit the first rock, he woke up. He jumped up into the back seat and he began to pace back and forth, such as, so the, the driver, who was the owner of Trevor, had to tell him, Trevor, sit down. Trevor, calm down. My brother 
was in the back seat with Trevor. And, and he was getting slapped in the face and in the head by Trevor's happy tail. If you know labs, you know they're a happy tail. And man, he was back and forth pacing. He could not be controlled. He was pantering. He was slobbering all over uncontrollably over my brother. And do you know why? Because Trevor knew something we did not. He knew where this road led. Man, he was excited. He came to life. He knew where we were going and he knew what we were about to experience and he loved it so much he could not contain his excitement. Now when we got to the end of the road at the lake, that's when we learned why Trevor was so excited. So I'm gonna show you a few pictures that capture the worth that that Trevor was so excited about. The lake we fished that day was set at about 11,800 feet in elevation on the Continental Divide Trail Elevation aside, the scenery was one that took your breath away. It wasn't the first time I had seen a high mountain lake, but every time I've seen one, it was breathtaking. And then I realized Trevor was right once we got to fishing because we began to catch some of the most beautiful Colorado greenback cutthroat trout you've ever seen. And listen to me, every one, that once near dead dog in the back floorboard would run over any distance to make sure he got to stick his nose and his tongue on that fish. There were a few times, I guarantee you had to run 100 yards when he heard fish on, but he was coming like a black bear attacking you. Over those three days of fishing, I became increasingly convinced, like Trevor, the pain and the discomfort of the journey we had to endure was worth it because of where we got to. You see, I realized, friends, Trevor was right. The hard ride, every rock and every bump was worth it. And in recounting that memory, I was reminded of Romans 8.18. As a believer, the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed. Christian, this is true of our life in Jesus. Jesus is worth it no matter what he commands. By faith, you can trust Him. You can obey His Word. His power will prove sufficient for your life. And in the end, you will discover He was worth it. And as you take this truth away today, that God has called us to live as a faithful witness in the world, and knowing that our reward of glory is worth it, I say to you today, be a Trevor. Be a Trevor in the world. Exhort each one of us as Christians, to recognize who we are, to see what God has given us and to accept his call to faithfulness. Live with the anchored conviction that this momentary sufferings of this present time will not compare with the glory that will be revealed in the day of Jesus Christ. Let's pray.